It was a cold October morning in Wilson, Kentucky, when the mutilated body of Nancy Lowe was found on the side of the road. Although some suspects were investigated, no one has been held accountable for the death of my cousin. It is my hope that this podcast will bring us closer to finding Nancy's killer 10 years later. I was right about Paul Swan. Last Saturday, he finally succumbed to the Heartland virus he'd been suffering from for weeks. I'm not proud to say it, but a part of me was upset by this. Because if he was behind what happened to Nancy, he will not never face justice. And because of this, and the events of last week in the woods, I was going to give up. I was ready to move back to California and leave Wilson, Kentucky once and for all. But this Monday, I received something in the mail. A letter addressed to me from the Noah Blackfeather Memorial Hospital. And inside were several typewritten pages on official Swan Shop letterhead. I believe it to be the last thing Paul Swan ever wrote. I will read it here in its entirety. Dear Phoebe Lowe, first off, I am truly deeply sorry for what happened to Nancy. I have felt the emptiness that the death of a loved one creates. And the older you get, the more empty everything becomes. A long time ago, when my parents died, I realized what it felt like. Like being awoken from a sweet dream with a bucket of ice water, and sitting there soaking and cold and confused. The ice never melts, you just get used to how cold it is. It was then, at the age of 25, I knew that it would be easier to withhold the warmth that people bring and save myself from the sobering chill of their absence. Phoebe, please forgive the digressions of a dying man. I don't expect for you to care much about what I have to say. I genuinely did not know Nancy, and what you find in this letter may not bring you one step closer to finding her. But if you have made it this far, and you are perhaps reading these words aloud into a microphone, then I am still living. For a person is only truly dead when they have stopped saying new things. And to those who have not read past this sentence, I am still living. Your description of my life, being known only for creating the swan shop, is a painfully accurate assessment. It's not exactly what I had hoped to be remembered for. The grocery store guy. When I was a boy, I wanted to write. I hated speaking because of the stutter. Words are such beautiful things but I don't have much luck with them unless they are on the page. Because of my inability to express myself vocally in a polite manner, my desire to keep my emotional distance from people has been very successful. The only person who didn't seem to mind was Mary. Mary was the only person I ever truly loved. But, as Hal Avery has said in the past, I loved her like kin. I'm not sure what it's like to have siblings, but based on how Mary used to talk about her sister Ava, it felt a lot like that. Unconditional. Instantaneous. Even angry or mean at times. I had a hard time generating relationships with people, especially with women. I knew I was supposed to seek intimacy with girls deeper than just friendships, and Mary is the closest I ever got to that. We had met when I first started working at the Crane Family Market as a boy. 
She had talked to me a few times while I faced the shelves. She was one year older than me and towered over me. She was always taller than me. She used to point out that she could say anything to me because even if I wanted to spread gossip, there's no way I could get it out. I wasn't sure if she was joking or not, but somehow this odd one-way conversation became a friendship. I'll tell you, I've spent many sleepless nights as a teenager reverse engineering how we became such close friends, hoping I could find a way to replicate it, define it, perhaps find a series of phrases and actions that could unlock the wall between acquaintance and companion. But, of course, there exists no such incantation. You just have to sit there like flypaper and hope someone gets stuck to you. That's how I became friends with the late Bill Cage. He was odd, like me. Queer, in every definition of the word. He and his late brother Cecil were the only Cage boys who never married. And perhaps it was because he was also a quiet, pale boy growing up. But he took a shine to me. Though, as I became better friends with Mary, I feel as though he became jealous of her. Trips to the shooting range would suddenly run longer. It's a painful thing, standing there and hearing someone artificially extending conversations just to keep you around. Perhaps this letter is beginning to sound like that. I learned a lot of things from Bill, not just about shooting. He taught me how to roll a cigarette, how to make moonshine. And when he got good and drunk on that moonshine, I rolled him a cigarette. He would tell me all about the harpy and how she had murdered his brother. He never called her the owl woman. He used to say a bitch like that don't deserve a name. And he would tell me all about Cecil, how he was a beautiful and innocent, how he risked his life to save that baby and how that beast made a mess of him and used his bones and flesh like decorations. And as he got drunker and drunker, he'd throw bottles out into the woods and curse the harpy. And he'd curse Deirdre. And he'd curse me for looking at him that way. And I'd run off into the woods to escape him. Once he shot blindly into the forest after me, he would say I had the harpy's eyes. Then he'd pass out in the cold grass and cradle his rifle and would wake up the next morning smelling of sweat and smoke, crying and apologizing for his awful behavior. And it was because of Bill Cage that I knew the owl woman wasn't real. It was the mad ravings of some mean old drunk. So when Mary invited me to one of her brancher meetings, I laughed in her face, knowing this was just another practical joke. But she wasn't joking. She was really inviting me out into the woods in the middle of the night to have fun with some kids from school. I told her I was awful around people, but she reassured me she would never leave my side. She reached out and held my hand. And it was then I realized that I had never held hands with a person who wasn't my mother and father. My cheeks still hurt from the smile I wore that day. Flashlight in hand, I snuck out of my house for the first time. I passed the birdbath in the backyard and through the back gate that led to the woods. I knew I was free. 
A lot has been said about how unsettling the woods are at night, but I found the isolation to be refreshingly solitary. The silence also made it incredibly easy to find where the branches were meeting. They had made a bonfire in a small clearing and had an ice chest full of beer. The group stared at me and asked what I was doing there. I panicked and nearly ran back home rather than stutter back an answer, but Mary came to my rescue. She tossed her arms around my shoulders and introduced me to the unimpressed group of kids. They only called me small, so I didn't bother to remember names either. Mary and I sat by the fire and talked for a while. She nursed her beer while I thumbed at the label of my second bottle. Then she asked if I had wanted to join her to look for bait. I nodded happily, unsure of what she meant. I would have gone anywhere with her. And as we walked into the heavy brush away from the clearing, she stopped me. We stood in silence for nearly a minute. I couldn't even hear the others by the bonfire. She looked around as if she had heard a noise, then looked back down at me to see if I was scared. I must not have looked very scared. She asked if I believed in the owl woman. I told her no. She asked me what I was doing out here then. I shrugged and said I was here because of her. She took a seat in the leaves below. I knelt down to meet her eyes. She was smiling at me and placed a hand on my cheek. It was so cold, but I didn't care. She said I was so brave, and I laughed and told her no one had ever called me brave before. She leaned in closer and asked if I had ever been kissed before. I shook my head no. She laughed again and said I looked scared now. I shrugged and looked down at the purple leaves. She reached out and held me to her shoulder. I could smell her perfume and her sweat. She asked if I wanted to kiss her. I shrugged, saying I wasn't sure. She cradled my head back to look up at her. The world was a curtain of long brown hair, as brown as the trees. Her smiley face looking down at me from between the curtains. And we leaned forward and kissed sweetly. And as we broke the kiss, we stared at each other for a very long time. And we both understood each other. Without saying a word, she knew everything about me. And she nodded, a tear in her eye. And she hugged me tight. And she said she loved me. And I told her I loved her. And Phoebe, this was the greatest moment of my entire life. We knew that we would always be there for each other, and that she would always be my first and only kiss. And, as if on cue, I heard my mother calling my name in the distance. I sighed and began to get up, hearing her approaching us. But Mary reached out and grabbed me tightly by the wrist. I looked down at her, and her eyes were wide and terrified. I tried to calm her, telling her it was just my mother. She shook her head, then pulled me down to her face and whispered, No. Footsteps. I didn't understand what she meant by this. 
I could hear branches moving and her voice getting closer. Mary got to her feet and repeated again, her voice shaking this time. No footsteps. She was right. Although I could hear the sound of leaves and branches in my mother's voice, I could hear no footsteps. Mary and I looked at each other and ran. Holding each other's hands, we ran as fast as we could, hoping we would reach the end of the forest. Hearing my mother's call getting closer and closer, even as we broke into a full sprint. We did reach the road, thank God. And as we looked back, breathing heavily, we saw only the trees swaying and the voice disappearing into the quiet night. And it is because of Mary Crane that I believe in the Owl Woman. We became obsessed after that. We took up bird watching. We read all about the history of the harpy as much as you have. And then I made one of the biggest mistakes of my life. I told Bill Cage about what we had experienced in the woods. It felt innocuous enough, telling Bill about it. But he no longer needed moonshine to become that insane man I had seen before. Things changed quickly when Bill became a brancher. He no longer wanted cold roadkill as bait. He wanted fresher and fresher meat. Inspired by the actions of Macario Calabro's father in the 70s, he oversaw the abduction of pets and planned to lure unexpected people to their deaths. He ruined the brancher meetings, soiled the reputation of those kids, including Mary, and it was all my fault. I completely cut ties with Bill and bought the land where I knew the owl woman had been seen. And if Bill or anyone else was found trespassing, I'd prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. I will admit that after Bill Cage passed, I had forgotten all about that land and let it fall to disrepair. Well, Phoebe, the night is growing dark. So I shall give you one last bit of information that I have never told anyone. My private hunting trips. I actually started taking them the year Mary had taken her life. But after I was accused of murdering Nancy, people kept a much closer eye on my whereabouts. Out of, I suspect, a morbid curiosity. I tell you now, Phoebe, I had no intention of harming anyone on these trips. No one but myself. I would go out into nature, far away from where anyone would know me, searching for that silent isolation I felt when I first walked into the Wilson Woods alone. Just me, a gun, and one bullet and hope to find the nerve to take my own life as Mary had. But I was always weaker than her. I could never bring myself to do it. Each year returning home to that empty house, built by my long dead parents, knowing that I'm growing older than they ever were, knowing that I'm the reason they were on that damn plane. This most recent trip, I finally thought I had the strength. But at the last second, the gun dropped from my head and the bullet shot through my shoulder. I lay there bleeding for days, knowing that either way, this would be the last time I would be taking one of these trips. It appears I was correct. And now, because of my cowardice, 
I die in the most painful way I can imagine. But I will tell you this, Phoebe. I am so happy I am no longer in that godforsaken house. Thank you, Phoebe, for reading this to its conclusion. If you haven't, then you will never reach the sentence. I hope you find your cousin's killer. But no, and I mean this with all the love I can muster, it will never satisfy your need to have Nancy back in your life. Warm regards, the late Paul Swan. P.S. When you visited me last, I had told you to investigate Nancy's ex-boyfriend. You had guessed I was talking about Dr. Ryan Faulkner, I imagine. This is untrue. I was referring to Hal Avery. Good luck, Phoebe. He really signed it the late Paul Swan. Mr. Swan is probably right. I won't find comfort in the truth. But there is still truth out there. And I fear that if I wait any longer, it will be lost forever. So, with all this information Paul Swan has given me, including more information about his alibi, I decided to pay Hal another visit. Hal had spent nearly three years in prison with charges of tampering with evidence. Those who suspected he had something to do with Nancy's death saw this as a slap on the wrist. It was only made worse when he was let out earlier than his five-year sentence due to good behavior. Eli was 16 when his father was released and refused to live with him, instead staying with Chief Jay until he was 18. I spoke with Hal in his small studio apartment, which is just a walk away from the apartment where Nancy used to live. Hal lives a quiet, solitary life. His apartment is plain but clean. A cross hangs beside his front door. On his small fridge hangs old pictures of him as a police officer. Although he now works at the crow's nest as a bartender, he still doesn't drink. He is a pleasant host, smiling and clean-cut. I asked him how he had been since we talked a month ago. He shrugged and simply said he was getting by. We talked about the passing of Paul Swan, and Hal nodded quietly. I told him that I thought Mr. Swan was innocent. Hal agreed, saying that after reflecting on the actions that landed him in prison, he couldn't see Paul Swan doing something like that. Clumsily, I replied that Mr. Swan suspected that he had something to do with it. He looked at me suddenly and asked me who I thought did it. I shrugged, unsure of how to proceed. He asked me again, saying that I had done a lot of work and asked a lot of people, that I must have some kind of suspicion. I replied that I think Ryan might have something to do with it, but that his alibi at the time makes the hunch unlikely. But, I said, you never gave the police an alibi for that night. He shook his head emphatically, saying that he never needed to. I paused for a second, taking in his mannerisms, the way he sounded. His hands outstretched as if he was pleading to me. I then asked him what he was doing that night. He hesitated, 
coiling back into his seat. And after a second of thought, he said he was home with Eli. I nodded at first, which seemed to comfort him, but then told him what Eli had told me years ago. He was on a date that night. Hal froze in his seat, his face growing white. He popped his knuckles nervously and, without looking at me, nodded. I continued, asking if he was on a date with Nancy, asking if what happened was a mistake. He placed his hands out on the table, shaking his head, repeating that it was nothing like that. If it wasn't related to Nancy's murder, why didn't he tell the police? Hal said it wouldn't have looked like how it was. So how was it? I asked. After a very long pause, Hal took a breath and told me what happened that night ten years ago. Leading up to October 3rd, Hal and Nancy had become amorous. The two had grown very close very quickly, although Nancy had reservations of making the relationship sexual while still dating Ryan. Hal had offered to talk to Ryan himself, but Nancy felt it was her responsibility. He assures me he never pressured her for sex, but that Nancy wanted to be with him. She was so excited to be dating Hal that she even wanted to invite him to my birthday that night to introduce him. But Hal was cautious about springing this kind of revelation on everyone, and she agreed it would make the party more about her than me. And that sure does sound like Nancy. After Nancy broke up with Ryan, the two decided to go on a date together before my birthday, and then rendezvous back at her apartment afterwards. They had dinner at his house around 8, and she left from my house on her bike at 9.30. He had offered to drive her to my house, but she jokingly said she didn't want people to think she was in trouble with the police. He laughed at this, and then bit his lip. He reminded me that it had been a few years since Mary had passed. It had been a very long time since he had felt this kind of affection for anyone. So he put Eli to bed and drove to her apartment at around 10 p.m., excited to surprise her. He sat in his cruiser until around midnight, ignoring the call for officers to break up a fight at the crow's nest. At around 12.30, he knocked on her apartment door, suspecting he had missed her arriving. There was no answer. He sat on her welcome mat, his back leaning against the door as he looked up at the night sky for nearly an hour. At around 1.30 a.m., he returned to his car and drove to my house. He debated knocking on the door and asking about Nancy, but decided against it when he saw the lights were off and her bike nowhere in sight. He returned to her apartment at 2 in the morning knocked on her door again, and then fell asleep in his police car. He woke up at around 8 a.m., knocked on her apartment door one last time, and, receiving no answer, returned home and cried himself to sleep in bed. He wasn't sure what was wrong with Nancy, but figured she needed her space, and he would check in with her on Monday. He said that Friday evening and Sunday afternoon felt like one long, awful night. And the combination of confusion of their relationship and his lack of sleep 
led to his mental break when he heard she was a missing person. He began to shiver and broke into a quiet sob in front of me. I said I was sorry, though I wasn't sure what to be sorry for. He began to wipe his face with his hands, and I asked him if he wanted a tissue. He nodded and motioned to a cabinet next to the refrigerator. The cabinet had several drawers, so I opened them one at a time, looking for a box of tissues. The first had a Bible and other books on religion. The one below it had albums, photographs, and what looked like a cardboard shoebox. The drawer below that had cleaners, soaps, and bathroom supplies. I could hear him holding back a runny nose, so I checked the drawer above again to see if I had mistaken the shoebox for tissue boxes. Upon opening the drawer and moving the box around, I heard something coming from inside. A weak metal chime. I stopped and opened up the box. And inside was a collection of golden music boxes. I froze and heard him get up from the table and walk over to me. He told me the tissue paper was in the third drawer, then paused. Standing right behind me, I turned around and he looked back at me, confused, asking me what was wrong. I acted like it was nothing, closing the drawer and reaching for the drawer with the toilet paper. He thanked me as I gave him a roll, wiping his nose and face. I started to thank him and stepped towards his front door. He asked if everything was okay. I assured him I was fine. He nervously followed me, asking if I believed him. I said that I did, walking backwards toward the door. He took another... Fuck. Hi, Bridget. How are you? Oh no, I'm okay. What's up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed talking to you for the last episode. I'm glad you heard it. Right. Yeah, that was that was really scary. Especially hearing her voice in the woods like that. Wait, really? Do you have any of her old radio commercials on file? Dr. Holy shit. Bridget, can you play that again for me really quick? One more time for me, Bridget, please. Today's weather is brought to you by the offices of Ryan Faulkner. Feeling sad, lost, unable to cope with the stresses of life? Dr. Ryan Faulkner has an open door for you. You won't find a fee below Ryan's. So, what, do you you think someone used part of the clip? Do you think you could get me a list of who works there now? (laughs) 